Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast world. I'm Brooke McCallery. My name's Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode 233 with Elise Bailu. Yes, it is. Elise uh, is the founder of an organization that some of you may have heard of called Mindful in May. And we talk quite a bit about that. But Elise is also a doctor and she has a background in psychiatry. So she and I have this really incredible conversation about the science of mindfulness and meditation. Uh, and you know, I think it's really going to appeal to people who are still skeptical mm. of the impact of it. And I know there's a lot. You guys know, listening to me talk over the last three years almost, that I'm a huge advocate for mindfulness and meditation and would argue with anyone that it, it is benefits positively it. impactful. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But I know there's a lot of people who still, they're not on board. And Elise, I think, is going to really appeal to people. Maybe you've got a friend or a partner or, you know. A relative. A relative. A mother-in-law. He's, he's not on board. Exactly. Pointed comment there, Ben. Hi, guys. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so Elise really does kind of shed some light on that from the perspective of someone who has created a career in the scientific medical community and interesting as well she is also the mother of a young young girl she's like two years old and has the exact same issues that everyone who has become a parent finds with mindfulness and meditation it changes your requirements change your ability to find time changes and we had a really nice chat about that too which I think will leave people feeling not off the hook but it's a hook, man. <laughs> inspired to, to, to try anyway. So is this the episode for the doubters of meditation? In part, yeah, I okay. think so. I think so. I mean, you can go back. If, if this is something that you're just beginning your journey into, we've done quite a few episodes over the past couple of years where we've spoken either about meditation ourselves and we've done an experiment in it, uh, but also spoken to meditation practitioners uh, and people who are much more highly practiced than I am. Uh, and we'll include links to all of those in the show notes. But Elise has got something really cool happening too. Well, she does. And that, that's, yeah, I, that's exactly where I was going with that. Mm. Thank you. So Elise, as I mentioned at the very beginning, is the creator of Mindful in May, which is a month-long program designed to get people who are just beginning meditation to create a 10-minute-a-day habit of meditation. And that's essentially what Mindful in May is it does you sign up it's a 49 dollars registration fee i think which is incredibly well priced for a program a 30-day program and for that you receive daily meditation guided meditation recordings but also video interviews with some huge meditation practitioners people who have you know been really instrumental in, in changing the space and this is the thing that i find really fun about it is that it's also a fundraising campaign for charity water so you know people get sponsored for dry july or october or mm. movember yeah <laughs> all those other ones are uh, and this is something similar you can get people to sponsor you for your 30-day mindfulness challenge and i think it's 98 percent of that donation goes towards charity water which is a, a organization doing amazing things in developing countries, basically providing clean water for communities that have never had it. 
So, you know, you can do something that really is helpful to you as a, an individual, but without losing sight of the fact that we can have a, a positive impact with these kinds of things. Mm. So there is more information about Mindful in May over on our website. If you head to slowyourhome.com slash mindful in May or the uh, show notes, which is slash 233, mm-hmm. you will find everything you need to know. Good stuff. Mm. And with that, let's hop into the episode. Okay. Hey, Elise, how are you going? Hi, Brooke. I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here and be having this conversation with you. I love your work. Oh, thank you. Likewise. I just want to say from the very outset of our chat, congratulations on everything that you've achieved with your work over the past few years. I mean, as you're the founder of Mindful in May, which is literally changing thousands of lives, and you've just put out your book, uh, The Happiness Plan, as well. And I I can't wait to dive into our conversation, but what you're doing is bringing the life-changing magic of mindfulness to people, uh, and I think it's phenomenal. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It's it's my passion, and, yeah, I definitely feel like I'm I'm on purpose and on mission. Yeah, and you know what? You can tell that when you listen to you speak, when you read your book, when you dive into the work that you're doing, you can tell this comes from a place of absolute passion and and personal understanding that mindfulness can change everything. And I wanted to ask you, have you always been someone who is aware of the importance of mindfulness and sort of an advocate for it? Or was there a time in your life prior to mindfulness? And if so, what was that like? So I think I was really fortunate in that I have a mother who I I had good karma. I landed a fabulous mother (laughs) and she really has been a huge influence in my life uh, in, in the extent of introducing me to ideas and practices like mindfulness and meditation. So I grew up in a house where the bookshelves were full of books by all the incredible leaders in the field, John Kabat-Zinn, Jack Kornfield, all of, all of the names. And, And so I got exposure to this from a pretty young age. But having said that, it wasn't actually like I was meditating from the age of eight, you know, or something like that. It was sort of, I I was ambiently aware of it. And then it was only later in my life, probably, you know, my early 20s, that I really landed into mindfulness. And that was really in the context of being a doctor and facing a lot of trauma on a daily basis and just realizing that I needed to start actually implementing these practices rather than just reading about them. Right. It sort of sounds like so much of what we know as as humans to be good for us, we don't necessarily put them into practice until we absolutely need to. A hundred percent. And I think to add to that, I am definitely not I mean if if people sort of imagine what the typical, I guess, meditation teacher is they might imagine someone that's really Zen by nature and and Zen and calm. And I'm really not like that. I'm someone who is, I've just always been a really active person. My partner always laughs. Our joke in our relationship is that he just wants me to sit on the couch and like watch a TV series with him. And I just, I'm always doing. And so I think that I naturally came to meditation because I needed a way to learn how to actually become more still and get better at being. Right. And that's to me really interesting because I feel like there's this huge shift in the conversation now and over the last few years towards 
at least understanding the benefits of mindfulness because of what you just spoke about. So many of us have been brought up to think that to be productive, to be successful is to be constantly doing and the idea of being and, you know, the idea of slowing down or, or embracing doing nothing for a moment has been sort of pushed aside as, as laziness or mediocrity or, you know, and I think it's, it's this relearning that, that simply being in the moment and learning to be present and learning to be content with whatever's happening in the moment that's, uh, that, that we're, I feel like as a society and at least certain subsections of society are starting to relearn that. And I love seeing the light go on when people are like, oh, so doing nothing is as important as doing something. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, hearing you say that, it kind of, it actually reminds me of a time when I was, I was on the path, so I was practicing, but I hadn't yet really, I, I just discovered the science around meditation and mindfulness. And as a doctor, I, it really piqued my interest. I'm like, I'm going to go and do a personal study and investigation. And so that was when I took myself off to my first uh, silent meditation retreat. And as I write in my book, The Happiness Plan, I write this story about how I had this um, boss who said to me, oh, you know, I had I had a patient that lost their mind going on one of those things. <laughs> and it terrified me. And, and to be honest, I was a little bit scared taking myself off to a seven-day silent retreat because I thought, what the hell is going to happen here when, you know, it's just me and my thoughts. But then I went on that retreat and that really was just a completely transformative experience. I'm not sure if if you have done that before. I'm sure many of your listeners have and can relate to what I'm saying, but it was really the first time that I had experienced a completely different state of mind whereby suddenly just there was a sense that the mental static, just the busyness, the fullness was gone. And I I felt this immediacy. I felt it was just a completely new experience and it was quite mind blowing. And that's really that coupled with the science that I that I had learned really kind of flicked the switch for me. Right. And and I mean what what was the the science that you had initially come across? Like what was it that convinced you aside from your personal experience that there was mm. something really profound happening when people were practicing? Yeah, I remember yeah, so it was really distinct. So I went on a I went on a medical conference and there happened to be Richie Davidson there, who's one of the world's leading neuroscientists and researchers in the field of mindfulness and the brain in particular. And, and he did this talk and this masterclass where he was sharing the fact that after, you know, eight weeks of mindfulness practice, they had put people through brain scanners and, and seen that, you know, areas of the prefrontal cortex, which are, is the most highly evolved part of our brain had actually thickened. Um, and so there was evidence to suggest that mindfulness was really helping develop our brain particularly in the area of focus and emotional regulation. And when I saw these brain scan images on the, on the big screen up at the conference and, you know, this guy was a neuroscientist talking, it just completely, I, I was breathless. I was like, I, I just knew, aha, uh-huh, I, I found my air of interest because I was, you know, in medicine, in psychiatry, and I, I was feeling a little bit, um, a bit disillusioned at the time, a bit like I'm missing a piece of the puzzle here around well-being. Like I'm learning a lot about how to help people survive when they're really in the hmm. depths of despair, but I'm not really learning how to, I'm not learning enough about what we need to do to create a mind that is completely functioning at its absolute best. And that's really what I think mindfulness can help us with. It's sort of the, it's the physic, it's the, it's the mental training that we can do to, to have a mind that's fit and healthy. Yeah, and I, I find it 
I, mean, I really want to talk to you about this kind of melding of psychiatry and, and mindfulness and the neuroscience behind it, because that uh, it was actually in my psychiatrist's office that I first was introduced to the idea of mindfulness. So I was... That's impressive. I, you must have had a really good psychiatrist. <laughs> I did. She's amazing. She, I mean, I, I, I'm not overstating it to say that she yeah. saved my life. She was just phenomenal. I had really severe postnatal depression um, and I was, that, I was that person who never stopped. My brain never stopped. I never stopped thinking. I never stopped striving. I'd get the thing that I wanted and then I realised I wanted the next thing and, you know, it was a yeah. completely discontent, dissatisfied, anxious life. And she explained this idea of mindfulness without kind of making it sound, it was interesting. She didn't want to make it sound too woo and she also didn't want to make it sound too prescriptive because she knew that I'd sort of rebel against both of those. But she just (laughs) described this really simple exercise of spending time uh, immersed in my senses, just one, literally one minute at a time. Mm-hmm. I had two babies, you know, I, I really didn't think that I had time to meditate. Uh, I, I would have sort of freaked out had she told me I need to sit still for 30 minutes. But it was this idea of mindfulness that was completely transformative to me. And I remember the first time I did it, I sat there and I went through each of my five senses very briefly, but quite, you know, I was focused. I, I really wanted it to work. And it was a revelation. It really was. And I've since spoken to a lot of people about it and their reaction is much the same as yours. Wow, you must have had a really good psychiatrist. Do you think that that was sort of the, the missing piece for you, the, the lack of something, you know, yeah. meteor maybe? I don't know. I don't know how to describe it's, it. I, get, I, I think it's more psychiatry is a really important field and I learned a hell of a lot valuable training and experience through that path psychiatry saves lives it really does and it gets a big bashing in you know in the public uh, however I think that what it doesn't do is it, it doesn't sort of offer people a real understanding of the nature of the mind mm. and I feel that mindfulness really helped me it, it's been the most valuable education I've had and I've been studying for a long long time and um, it because it's really from, you know, the word mindfulness, it comes from um, the Pali language, the word is sati, and it means to familiarize or to remember. And so it's really about familiarizing yourself with your own mind so that you can learn how your mind is adding suffering or amplifying happiness and then getting better at doing the things that are going to make you happier. So I think, yeah, I think that it has been the missing piece for me. And I just feel that as a human you know, our minds are our greatest asset. You know, I was very struck by that when I was working in medicine, psychiatry, you know, you can, you can have a broken leg or broken arm, or you can, you know, parts of your body can be affected, but you still have your mind. And then that's a really powerful thing. If you lose your mind, you know, that, that you've lost everything. So I think that in our society, we don't spend enough time developing our own mind and building tools so that we can be more resilient, more kind of effective, more creative and just happier in Mm. general. Do you think that's because it's scary and uncomfortable? I think, I think partly, to be honest, I think partly it's because we haven't really understood it. And I think that's why it's such an exciting time now. I really think that the last sort of four years, there's been this paradigm shift where, you know, just like, I mean, I don't know when toothbrushing became a fad, you know, but (laughs) 
there's this idea that we brush our teeth in the morning and the night. That's not – no one debates that. Everyone does it. And the same with physical exercise. We all go to the gym. You don't have to be hippie to do that. And I think that the next wave of what we're seeing is that we're really understanding through the brain science that our well-being, our mental health, our happiness – it's not sort of something that we don't have any control over. There's many things that we can do to really ensure that we have our optimal well-being. And, and so I think it's more a case of education mm. and I think that we're really at a point where, where things are really shifting and we're seeing this brought into schools, which is just fabulous. And I think, you know, even the most sceptical psychiatrists are now – realizing there's rigorous science which is which is showing i mean some science came out uh, of england which which showed that for people that have had uh, multiple episodes of depression a two-month mindfulness program was as effective as maintenance antidepressants wow and and i just i, I guess i want to just put a warning in there that people should not be suddenly coming off their antidepressants of course <laughs> and that you know, it's also up to people to make up their own minds. Sometimes, you know, some people prefer medication. They don't really have the time or it's not of their inclination to be doing these practices. But for those who, who are interested, there are ways that really this practice can, can be so helpful. Mm, oh, absolutely. And I think it's, I do think it's fascinating to have seen the conversation around mindfulness and, you know, meditation as, as a kind of part of that conversation go from, being this hippie woo-woo idea to something that is solidly backed by science. And it's been really not that many years, I, I mean, from from mm. an outsider's perspective, that that mm. has, has really shifted and it's stopped being kind of a, a joke thing that people talk about and like, oh, yeah, well, that's nice for you, uh, to something that we, we tend to really understand the importance of. And I think, as you say, the fact that it's coming into schools and there's programs in schools to help kids with mindfulness and uh, to, for it to just simply be a part of the way we live is so exciting. Mm, absolutely. Now, are you a regular daily meditator yourself? Yeah, I am. So I meditate regularly. Having said that, my practice has changed since having a child. So I've got a <laughs> daughter who's two and a half. And um, what I notice for myself is that these days, I'm much more fluid, so I'm not sort of a get up in the morning and meditate at, you know, 7 a.m. every day. It's more like some days I'll do it in the morning, other days I'll do it in the middle of my work day because I work at a computer most of the day, and other days I'll, you know, do it on my beach walk and I'll just take, you know, 15 minutes and sit and practice. And I find that I actually, you know, most days I would do sort of a 20-minute 20, 20 chunk, mm -hmm. but a lot of the time I'm – I'm, I'm actually doing it a lot throughout my day, uh, so it kind of accumulates, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I, I think that it's really important. I'd like to dive into to how it's changed and how you felt that your practice has changed since having kids because I, that's one of the things I get a lot of pushback from uh, mums and dads who mm. want and understand the importance of either meditation or some kind of mindfulness practice but maintain that they don't have time since becoming parents. Mm. How did you shift, I guess, your approach and feel okay with it not looking how it used to look? Yeah, I think firstly I want to say that if you're new to meditation, I think it actually is really important that you sort of commit to a regular time just to sort of create a habit around mm. it. But for me – Look, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, I think one of the things that comes with a strong mindfulness practice is an increase in self-compassion. 
And that has just been the most transformative thing in my own life. And so whereas in the past, if I was meditating and I missed a few days, I would feel so bad and I'd be like, you're useless, you can't stick to anything. Nowadays, it's like I'm a human being Mm -hmm. and I have a busy life and I have a child and she was up all night last night and, you know, I've fallen off track for three days big deal, get back on board, you know? So, and that's the message that I put through my book and through the training. And that's what I think has made a huge difference for people that who otherwise wouldn't have been able to do it because they would have fallen off track and just felt really bad. So Mm. I kind of add this real tone of self-compassion of, you know what, you're doing your best rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater, just come back. There's that any moment is an opportunity to begin again and that's the beauty of this practice so yeah so in terms of the way my practice has changed I think you know it's really an integrated part of my life and there there aren't too many days that go by if I have fallen off track that I don't come back to it because it's like once you've once you've experienced the power and the quality of mind that comes from this and the way that it helps you be less emotionally reactive, helps you sort of be more patient, even, you know, for myself in business and in motherhood, being, you know, maintaining a sense of calm and being able to pause before reacting when something's happened that's a bit of a disaster or, you know, my child's having a tantrum or my partner and I are in a tiff because, you know, we're both exhausted or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's an an integrated part of my life. And I think, you know, that was also what led me. I, I did some research that's actually just been published in the Journal of Mindfulness, which is really exciting. And the research was actually on the Mindful in May program. And the reason I did this is because I wanted to answer the question, which comes up a lot, particularly in some of the workshops I teach, around how much meditation is enough yeah. to get the benefit. It's probably the most asked question. And so I had a brilliant opportunity with Mindful in May because I have thousands of people doing it each May. So we did a research study. It involved about 200 people and they took a survey before and after to see if, you know, after doing 10 minutes a day for the month of May, they actually had any noticeable benefits. And and we were really excited to say that, yes, there were, and that was statistically significant. It was a pilot study, but nevertheless was statistically significant and revealed people shared that they were better able to um, perceive their signs of stress and respond more effectively they had a reduction in negative emotions an increase in positive emotions and a greater level of mindfulness and focus which actually increased on um the more days they did the more mindfulness and focus that they felt so I feel like that's a really great you know it's an initial piece of research but it's a great one to to reassure people that even just 10 minutes a day is a great start and you will feel noticeable benefits exactly and that that is one of the questions I'm asked a lot too. Uh, and I'm glad you mm. you came to that information because I was going to ask, that was my next question for you. If, okay, so someone's listening, they're like, my kids don't nap. I, I'm constantly on the go. I don't have time to, to, to sit down for 10 minutes. I mean, first of all, I mm-hmm. would question whether that's the case yeah. and whether, yeah, <laughs> whether or not we can maybe put our phones down for 10 minutes or turn our yeah. um, computers off in our lunch break for 10 minutes and, and meditate. But or not, or not, what about, or not get hooked on the old Facebook scroll, which exactly. just sucks. Like I'm sure most people could drop the 20 minutes of random Facebook scrolling. Yeah. Exactly. I think you're being really generous with 20 minutes, to be honest. <laughs> 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 it's a lot more than that for the majority of people. Yeah. But if, let's say, we chunk that up into two five-minute amounts, you know, five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, is that going to have the same effect for people? 
The truth is I don't know because mm-hmm. I guess the, the program that I run is it's sort of the 10-minute, you know, there's 10-minute meditation. So I can't speak to that from any sort of research perspective. But I, I mean, intuitively, I, I would imagine that would definitely make a difference. Mm. But I think the thing is it's like try it, like commit to it and see for yourself, you know. Um, I, I have a guy, there was a guy in my program, he was actually like a truck driver and he just came to me at the end. He's like, I've been doing this mindful minute that you gave me. This just a, a one to two minute meditation every day, about three times a day at different times. He goes, I can't, I just can't believe what a difference it's made in my life. Wow. So it just, I think it's really an invitation to experiment for yourself. Yes. But I think that the key is actually having a community and having accountability and support. And that is actually exactly why I created Mindfully May because it offers people this structure and a, and a community to be part of because it is really hard to stick to this stuff by yourself. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think as you were talking before about creating and building self-compassion as a result or a byproduct of meditation and mindfulness, for me, it's sort of It was a lot like this idea of buffer or margin that I found myself creating when I first started adopting mindfulness and then meditation. It was sort of, I I used to operate at 100% capacity so that if anything went wrong, I had an argument with my husband, if one of the kids spilt something or, you know, the car didn't start or whatever it may be, I just, I had nowhere to go and it was always Mm. explosive and I was always reactive. And what I discovered over a period of about two or three months of daily mindfulness practices was that I created this buffer and I felt like I was operating Mm. at 80% so that when Mm. those things invariably went wrong, uh, it wasn't catastrophic and I didn't explode and I wasn't a horrible person to be around. And, uh, Mm. And I think that came as a result of consistency, um, particularly yeah. in the beginning. So with the, the Mindful in May program, I think it's so fantastic because it is accessible, as we were talking about. Anyone can find 10 minutes a day. What does that look like for people who take the program? I mean, they guided meditations? Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. So people, so when people register, they get, essentially they get an email, they get a login to a membership site, an email every day to remind them and they get, yeah, they get the audio guided meditations to stream each day um, and they also get, you know, video interviews and masterclasses that I've done with some of these people that I've been referencing throughout our conversation. I basically went and hunted down all of the leaders that have inspired my own journey and I share them in the program and it's really about bringing the science to people in an accessible way and also giving them very uh, powerful, simple strategies and techniques that they can integrate into their day. One of the experts that I interviewed was um, a guy named BJ Fogg. I don't know if you've come upon him from Stanford University who's a behaviour change expert and his teaching completely transformed my practice. Um, I really recommend that people follow up on his work. Okay, I will add some links in the, uh, the show notes to his work, um, as well, of course, as links to Mindful in May. I was going to say, though, the what I love about it is it's that combination of actionable, simple steps, 10 minutes a day. You feel like you've got an accountability kind of partner or group in being part yeah. of the community, but then it's also paired with the science. So if you've got someone who's a little skeptical, someone who's like, oh, I don't think it works, you know, prove it to me, show me, someone who kind of pushes back against the the idea of it, it's right there. I mean, you've given everyone the toolkit to, to really just dive into it. And I love, personally love the idea of experimentation. You know, what do you have to lose? Give yourself 30 days and just see how you feel at the end of it, you know, and it removes the idea of, 
failing or, you know, if you if it's a challenge then and you feel like you skip a day or you don't do as well, then you feel like you've failed. But if you go into it with a an open mind or an experimental kind of mindset, you sort of, mm. well, what's going to happen? Let's see. Yeah, and bring curiosity to it. And exactly. I think, I think I just want to also add, I mean, so I alluded to some of the science and, you know, there's literally thousands of studies that are coming out every year. But I just, I get so excited about the science because it is so amazing. And I just want to make sure your listeners know this fact, because I think if they hear this, they'll be really quite compelled to give it a go, which is that, so Richie Davidson, this guy who really probably changed my life, the neuroscientist, a bit of research he did a few years ago, which was pretty groundbreaking, was that he took a group of people and he, he, he did like a, a day of mind, of meditation with them. So it was sort of about six hours, six to eight hours. Now you would argue that your general public may not have, you know, a day that they're going to put aside to meditate. But what he found, he did blood tests on these people before and after this day. And he found that this was enough practice to actually change the genetic expression wow. of inflammatory mark, inflammatory proteins in the body. So what that means in English is that, you know, we know that inflammation in the body is a is a significant risk factor for various chronic diseases. And there are genes that code for those inflammatory markers. And we know through epigenetics, which is, you know, the way that our environment and our choices actually impact on how our genes are expressed, that we actually are not victims of our own genetics. Like there is some of that, but we have a huge capacity to make decisions that are going to turn the volume up or down on our genes and have a huge impact on our well-being. So that, to me, that the fact that we can use our minds and do this mental training and somehow it's translating right down to the level of our genes is just incredibly mind-blowing. Uh, it's it's phenomenal to me. I mean, I it, for so long it was sort of that was a, a reason that we had for things being the way they were, wasn't it? It's, it's in our genes. Yeah. I'm like this because yeah. of, it's in my genes. And as you say, that's not going to disappear completely, of course, but yeah. the fact that we have the capacity to make changes on that level is is phenomenal it's mind-blowing to me yeah it's so empowering when I heard that I was like wow I mean it's it's initial research so it's but that's why it's so exciting to get onto this because it still is emerging you know but the hints that we're seeing are just really opening up windows of real possibility you know around what we can be doing to optimize our own health and well-being yeah it's phenomenal I'm really looking forward to diving into some of the research as well. So I will include links to to some of this stuff in the show notes. I also wanted to ask you um, about the role of charitable giving and the the collaboration that you do with Mindful in May with Charity Water. Mm. What was the reason behind that? So I... I spent time in my early 20s traveling quite a lot in developing countries. I was in India and West Africa. I spent quite a long time in West Africa. And I guess it was a really impactful experience. And I think for me, facing global poverty in a in that sort of personal way was really, I just thought this is completely unacceptable. Mm. And I feel personally as someone that is lucky to be living in Australia and have all of these opportunities, I just feel a social responsibility. I feel that it's a non-negotiable that, you know, if we have the power and and some capacity to make a difference, then we should be doing that. And so it was from my own personal drive, but also I think that 
you know, part of mindfulness, it's not just about, it's not just about training your own mind to get greater happiness for yourself. Yes. You know, it's, there's a huge component here that goes beyond mindfulness, which I also incorporate in the programs that I offer, which is around basically developing a good heart mm. and, and becoming a good human being. And I think part of that is developing compassion, turning your attention outwards, broadening your awareness and, 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 and helping in the world in whatever way you can. And so, and what, what I've found with Mindful May is that that adds a really powerful element to people's practice and motivation. And the fact that you do this program and it builds you inner resources, but then you dedicate that to something bigger than yourself, not only helps people to stick with their own practice, but also brings them a really deep sense of meaning and fulfillment. So, I think it's a it's a win win, you know, and I think any way that we can do something that's benefiting ourselves and benefiting and benefiting others is is just a plus. And I think we're seeing this globally through lots of different movements that are happening in the world. For example, the B Corps movement, you know, various kind of social impact. This idea that we can actually create businesses that make profit but also have a purpose and and serve the world. Yeah, I, I could not agree more on everything you said. I think. You know, this idea, this kind of thread that's that's come through our entire conversation of compassion is not simply self-focused. I mean, I think that a lot of us probably need a lot more self-compassion, but once we start to build that up, once we create that margin or that buffer or, you know, that that certain amount of compassion, it then spills over into everything we do. And I think that, like, just speaking of my personal experience of the last six or seven years, I've become much more outward focused and far less self-centered as Ooh. this as this stuff has taken root and transformed the way I think and the way I view myself in the world and the community and you know the the planet at large and it's incredible to me that something that begins maybe as as a very self-centered in a in a positive way but a self-centered mm. idea to maybe improve our happiness or our contentment can have such a huge impact globally I think it's wonderful and the way that you've partnered with with charity water is is fantastic because as you say people can see the impact that it's having and it also gives them some impetus to to stay true to the program and to to continue after May's over yeah absolutely you know i i just believe that there is a real problem in the world at the moment that we're facing which is a sense of a loneliness and b lack of meaning mm. and i think that you know, when people can solve those two issues for themselves, like feel more connected and feel that they're really doing something that's deeply meaningful, then that automatically just amplifies happiness. And then it's an upward spiral because I know for myself, as I've truly become happier in my life, I, I notice that I have more capacity to give because mm. it's just that it's a natural flow on effect. Whereas when we're feeling stuck or down or whatever, we go into this kind of internal world and that's really what, you know, depression is that. You get locked in your own thinking and your thinking becomes very about me, me, me. And I think if we can expand our awareness outwards and, and get out of our own way, then we can just live with a lot more meaning and happiness. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's I couldn't have said it any better myself. Uh, Elise, thank you so much for your time. And I just want to encourage everyone listening to go and check out your new book, The Happiness Plan. Uh, I will include links to it in the show notes and to your website and everything about Mindful in May as well. But uh, I think the work you're doing is tremendous and so important. Uh, and thank you for your time. Thank you. I feel the same right back at you. And thanks for your time. It's been such a pleasure chatting. Thanks, Elise. Thanks, Elise.
Pod.